This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Speak to Willie Carlin now. Uh, Willie, good morning. Good morning. Uh, Willie, I'm looking at photographs of you here from publicity you've done recently. I'm looking at the front cover of your book as well, uh, Thatcher's Spy. Just remind us, first of all, Willie, where you were from and how you came to take the path that you, you took. Um, I, well, I'm from Derry. I was born in the Foyle Road and brought up in the Craigan Estate. And as a young boy of 15, 16 years of age, the factory I worked in was closed down. There was no opportunity for work in Derry at all for young men. And, and just like Martin McGuinness, when I applied for jobs, the fact that I went to the Long Terry School, I was a Catholic, I couldn't get a job. My father had been in the Enniskillen Fusiliers and I persuaded him to let me join the Army. I joined the army and I went off to Derry, out of Derry when I was 17 years of age, served for nine years, and uh, we had a little baby that died of a cot death when we lived in England, and uh, my wife went home for a few weeks to try and get over it, because every Irish girl needs to be with her mother when something like that happens. And uh, she came back full of, look, Willie, you could go back tomorrow. You know, there's no trouble in the waterside where I live, and there's no, it's just only if you go to the dairy side. And sure, everybody says, you know, if you came back here and you were definitely out of the army and you definitely had discharge papers and you definitely weren't going to interfere with anything, you'd be, you know, you'd be okay. Well, I, this scared the life out of me because I thought, no way, I'm not going back there, I'll get killed. So I asked my colonel, you know, could you find out the real situation on the ground there and get me a letter that I can give to my wife and that'll stop this. Well, it worked the other way around. Somebody sent it on to somewhere else and it landed on the desk of an MI5 officer who thought, oh, wait a minute. So they checked out my background with my colonel and my brigadier and my annual reports and I was asked to go to a meeting in uh, Bovington and this man appeared and he told me I'm not in the army, I'm not in the Ministry of Defence, you don't have to call me, sir. And he asked me if I'd be interested in a project in Derry that involved um, getting involved with the local community. We do not want you to get involved with the IRA. If you ever get any information about the IRA and you pass it on to one of your handlers, he'll be duty-bound to pass it on. It'll blow your cover. So that was me kind of stuck. And I thought, what am I going to do? So I eventually decided that 
OK, I'll give us a chance because he said you'll be an undercover soldier. You'll be protected at all times while you're there. And if it goes wrong, we'll pull you out and we'll save your uh, increments and your pensions and your wages for as long as you're there. What I didn't know was there was nobody going to be protecting me. I was on my own. So off I went with my wife, my newborn son and my other son back to Derry. So you arrive back in Derry and you begin to get involved with Sinn Féin. The, the idea is to infiltrate Sinn Féin and to get as much information as you possibly can on what was happening uh, close to the IRA. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it wasn't as easy as that. I had to start of all, I mean, first of all, you just can't walk up and knock on the door and say to Sinn Féin, here I am, I'm an expert five weeks ago, I want to join. You can't do that. It took me years working in the community, getting housing repairs done, getting involved, forming a tenants association, etc. I kind of ended up in the housing estate I lived in. Guys that were in Sinn Féin and even some IRA volunteers used to come to me to get housing repairs done. And maybe, you know, my son was turned down for benefit. Could you go to the tribunal and represent him? So I got involved in all that kind of stuff. And... Uh, there was a march, it was during the hunger strike, and there was marches going on throughout Derry, black flag processions, where they carried a coffin, a big march. And one evening it came to God in the scale, and there was to be a lorry, and there was to be speakers, and everybody, I mean, even people who didn't support Sinn Féin, but was very, very much sympathetic towards the hunger strike, marched. And of course, the Sinn Féin people, you know, we all went, we all marched. And, and before that, uh, one of the guys from Sinn Féin said to me, listen, which, you know, because I was a bit of a songwriter and singer, and he says, would you write something like a wee poem or something that you could read out on the night? So I did, and I did, and I got a round of applause. And as I was getting off the lorry, a man came and said to me, listen, that was brilliant. We, we've, we've got a big march in the Diamond in two weeks' time. There's going to be thousands there, and a lot of dignitaries from Sinn Féin. Would you be interested in reading that wee poem out? And I said, of course. So we made a deal that I'd be there. And before he left, I said, listen, excuse me, what's your name? And he said, Mitchell McLaughlin. And that was the first time I met him. And it was after I did that speech and the way it went down that from there on in, I was kind of asked to join Sinn Féin. And did they see you as ex-army or did they just see you as, as a dairy man? Well, they seen me as, as a guy, you know, in the 65, the way lots of young men in Derry joined the army. I mean, the regiment I was in, the Queen's Royal Irish Hussars, in my regiment there were 25 guys from Derry, all who, you know, some of them were Protestants, some of them were Catholic, who had joined the army for the same reason as me. A lot of our fathers had, you know, army background from the Second World War. I mean, I was a war baby born in 48. So... You know, when I was, you know, there were people like me that, but obviously, no, they were more, can I say, they were more pro-Republican than I was, you know. And, um, you know, it's hard to explain. I have one of those attitudes, you know, I tell stories, I'm interested in politics. And when I, and when I go to a meeting, now, back then when I went to my very first meeting in the John Dolan Common in the Waterside, um, we sat in a house, an executive house that was boarded up. We were sitting with somebody who had put the electric on and we were chatting about what could we do about this and what could we... They weren't taking minutes. There was no agenda. There was nobody going to be sent over to the Curacanter next week to get information from there to spring back. The whole thing was all wrong. So, I mean, I went to lenses and I bought books and I bought pencils and it took me about two months, but we eventually got that thing up and running and it turned out then... These guys, some of them were in the IRA, but they were also in Sinn Féin, 
and they persuade. They said, "Would you go to the Curricanter meeting because our guys are no good? You're a good speaker, and so you could tell us them what we need to do next week." So that's why I ended up at Curricanter meetings. So, were, were you motivated at all by uh, a Republican mindset? Did you look back on on Bloody Sunday and and think it was it was murder? Did you see the hunger strikers as people you respected, or were you a complete fraud? No, uh, well, that's a good question. I have to take you back. But you know, when I was in, you know, when I grew up in Derry, my one of my best friends was Seamus Cusick. Lived at the end of Melmore in the same street as me. And when I was in Germany as a soldier, I heard that he'd been shot dead. Now all we had was the British Forces Broadcasting Service, and so when you listen to that, you know, a gunman was shot dead by the British Army, an IRA man. I thought, Jesus. You know, it's terrible. Poor Seamus. I never thought he would do that. And then uh, I was home and leave, and I met a wee girl, my, my niece, for the first time. I went back to Germany, and then it came on the news that she'd been shot dead rioting. And then my brother, I, again, this girl was rioting, throwing stones and, and throwing petrol bombs, and, and the army shot her. And, and it was my niece, Annette McGavigan, and I thought, Jesus Christ, she's only 12. What age is she? And then my brother phones me to tell me that's all lies. She was murdered. So I've got, uh, I've got this kind of mixed up view of what the hell's going on. And that was before I was approached by MI5. But when, but, you were, when to, but when you were approached by MI5, when you were on the ground back in the Craig and when you were in the city and living among people of a Republican mindset, were you always in your heart of hearts representing the British government? Well, I, I, well, that's that's that. There's kind of the problem. There were times I seen things in Derry. You know, the the SAS tried to shoot me dead. The, the, an RUC man tried to kill me with a plastic bullet when I was carrying Kieran Coffin's Kieran Fleming's coffin, and a guy had him instead. Um, an inspector broke my shoulder by beating me up because I went to court to represent IRA volunteers and get them out again. And and at the same time, in the estate I lived in. The, the, the IRA shot dead Joanne Mathers. They murdered her. She wasn't as she wasn't in the army. She wasn't in the police. She wasn't anybody. She was sending collections forms for a five or a day. They murdered Alice Purvis, who tried to protect her husband, shot her in the head. They kneecapped Colum Kerry with a rifle. Jesus, you don't need somebody. You don't kneecap somebody with a rifle. They bled to death in the garden. These guys were. You know, these, these people were murdered. So I'm stuck in the middle here. I'm thinking, right, wait a minute, you're an MI5 agent. You're supposed to be giving back information to give them the full picture. I mean, I, I ended up with divided authorities. I didn't know what I was. And how close were you to the likes of Martin McGuinness? Well, I mean, you know, when I went to Curricanter meetings, and there was a time, uh, uh, at the time there was the Kula Limister, it, it, we met Francie Malloy and us met up in um, Oma and sometimes Dungannon. And and then we get, you know, I was able to give my people, you know, the thoughts of Sinn Féin. What are they thinking about? What, you know, what, what are they against and what would they never move on? And from time to time, Martin would come to Kula Limister meetings and, and uh, you know, um, Kula Cantor meetings. And you only had to listen, you know, all I was doing was listening. You know, never, very, very rarely asked questions. Now, and, and, and when it comes to Martin McGuinness, a lot of this stuff has been blown out of proportion. I only ever had about six personal one-to-one conversations with Martin, whether it was either driving along the road 
or sitting in an office waiting for somebody to come. And those conversations were about poetry because he wrote poems and I wrote poems or about trout fishing. When he started about trout fishing, you could just sit there for half an hour because that's what he went on about. All sorts of things about families and friends and Craig and how we were related, all that. And those those kind of information, I mean, that meant nothing to me, but I was passing it on. So I, you know, what I was giving them was the the, the, the inner thoughts of Martin, the personality, that must, you know, the persona, what's he like? What We read all this stuff he reads out at graves, and we read all this stuff that he says in the press, but what is he like? And and I, I mean, I have to say, I don't think I was the only one doing stuff like that on Jerry Adams or somebody else. And I see, you know, at the time, I'm sorry for waffling on, but at the time, there was a, a group of people in London, I don't know how, what the volume was, but they had this view. We need to talk to these people, but they're terrorists as far as the government is concerned. Now, how can we get to talk to them? Well, there's an argument that says if these people were to stand in elections, for example, we would be duty-bound to talk to them. And then along came the Northern Ireland Assembly elections where it was agreed by the Army Council that Martin could stand on an abstentionist ticket. Now, once he did that, and once I helped to get him elected, because they said to me, you've got to get this guy elected. You know, on the no, you know, next Tuesday or Thursday, we've got to be able to say to the government, listen, we know that you don't want this to happen, but Martin McGuinness and Jerry Adams are now elected representatives of those people. It gave them the opportunity to say we can talk to them. And, and that's how this all started. So you're in there almost as a conduit between the British and the the the, the IRA without the IRA obviously knowing, knowing that and you continue on the ground to to work on behalf of the British but you are born and bred Cregan you're in what must be a very dangerous position how how worried how concerned were you every time you made a phone call or you spoke to a a handler well, uh, this is, you know, uh, looking back now, I kind of know the answer to that. I, I mean, I was, it's, it's hard to explain. When you think you're being protected and you believe that they told you we'll be around you all the time, we'll follow you, you'll be all right. And then you can do things with confidence. You can be like, oh, this is all right. If this goes wrong, I know they'll pull me out. And I never at any time, well, actually I realized one day there was nobody protecting me and I thought, Jesus. But I was living on adrenaline. The IRA guys that I met took some on jobs and dropped them off at a safe house. I went home, didn't know what they were going to do after that. And they were sitting in my car, putting on gloves, shaking, nervous. But when they got to that job and they got in that moment, they were living on adrenaline. I know guys that jumped over 12-foot walls that couldn't put a foot in front of the other. You know, they were living on adrenaline. We were all living on adrenaline. And you know, the other thing we had too was a sense of humor. We would never have got to deal with it. So, you know, that was what I was doing. And you got a phone call. I mean, I'll give you an example. I'm sorry for waffling here. I'll give you an example. Uh, Mitchell called me one night just after midnight. And he said, Willie, listen, can you come over to the house? I said, Jesus, I'm meeting you in the morning. No, but it's important. Okay. I says, right, I'll be with you in 20 minutes. No, don't bring your car. Walk over. I don't want your car outside our house. You know, the Brits know your car. The RUC knows your car. Okay. So just come over, walk over. So I'm, I'm thinking, I'm dead. This is it. You know, when you get a call like that, 
you know you're dead. That's it. You're dead. Because there was informers in Derry. You know you're dead. So what do you do? Well, you just have to say, right, I'm, I'm, this is it. If I'm going, I'm going. I don't want my family shot here in the house. So I'm going. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So you walk out of the water side, you go over the bridge, you go up Upper Corn Road, you end up going down the street. And as I got to his house, just about 50 yards away, there was two guys standing against the gable wall against the mural. And I thought, oh, Jesus, I'm dead. I stopped at the bog side and I nearly wet myself I had a cigarette. I couldn't even light it. I said, come on, Molly, get a grip here. So I walked up the street. I walked straight towards them. And they went, what about you? And I said, I'm out. And then down, I went past them into Mitchell's house. Mitchell let me in. It turned out he wanted to talk to me about something that was important, but he wasn't going to be there in the morning to talk to me. Do you know? And, and there was a guy in the house at the time. And he says, right, Mitchell, I'll head all now. And he, Mitchell says, well, I'll see Martin about that. I'll tell you on Friday. Uh, so I'm coming out the door after being in Mitchell's and thinking, oh, whoa, 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 that guy that was sitting in the house, Mitchell brought him, brought me over so that guy could see me, so he knows who I am. I'm going to get done on the way back. They're not going to ship me in Mitchell's house. So the same one and a half mile walk again. Now, you know, and then you get into bed and you go, jeez. Now, when that happens to you enough times, you get confidence that this is not you getting killed. So you're living in a constant worry or uh, an element of fear around you, but you have to build confidence from that that fear. And you're 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 watching and you're feeding back information. And you you do see Martin McGuinness at one point go into what was described as a safe MI5 house. Yes, uh, that was in November 1980. I had a meeting with Ben, my handler. And we, he decided that he liked a wee drink. He said, look, we could meet up at Karen Locke's church tonight. It's going to be a nice afternoon. And, of course, I'm Andy Lamavati up the road towards Karen Locke. And I'm passing the house that we used to use. The black gates opened and this car came out. And it came towards me heading for Derry, or into Lamavati and into Derry. Uh, I didn't know who the driver was. And then I nearly shit myself. The guy in the front left-hand seat was Martin with his kind of Donegal coat, the wee tweet thing. And, and he was looking down at something, reading or whatever. He never looked up, thank Christ. And I drove up the car and I stopped again. Here I am. And he said, I'm going to get... Oh, and I thought, they're telling him about me. Maybe, the, you know... But then I went to a few meetings and he never said anything and I thought, okay. Now, the only thing I can tell you, you know, this is just trying to join dots. Uh, three weeks later, the hunger strike was called off. 
And I know that Martin was against the hunger strike. And I think, whoa. Now, he mightn't have been going into an MI5 house, in my mind. Maybe that house is used for other things. Surely they haven't got a house in Lamavati just for me meeting them once a month for half an hour. Yeah, this is a reference to the first hunger strike, and you feel that Martin McGuinness played a, a role in halting that hunger strike as opposed to him being some form of agent. Oh, correct. I believe there was negotiating going on between the British government, their representatives or representatives or representatives to try and see what can we do to accommodate these people in the prison. Now, somewhere along the line, either at that meeting or another meeting that I don't know about, Martin and the Republican movement were persuaded that something would be given like clothes or books or your right to do this. And then in February, they reneged on it. So again, the hunger strike started. And you're continuing to watch these people all of the time you are an agent. Something eventually must have gone wrong for you, Willie, because they took you out of Derry like like, like a plum out of a tree. What happened there? Well, I, I mean, I, I was at home one night and um, the UV, uh, uh, as a side story, the UVF followed me in a car to shoot me because they blamed me for the death of a young man on the waterside where I had told him it was safe and I didn't know that the INA was, INLA was targeting him and not the IRA, so I was in trouble over that. Anyway, um, I was at home that night, uh, 2nd of March, phone rang, Ginger, my contact, he says, listen, I need to see you. Uh, I says, okay, wh- uh, what time? He said, no, now. I said, Ginger, it's five past twelve. I'm going to bed. He said, no, it's important. I says, well, you need to get the van out and, go- and I'll drive it. You know, I'm at the top of your street. He said, there's no van tonight. So I thought, Jesus. And then I thought, oh, I know. They're going to tell me that the UVF's trying to kill me. I already know that. So into the, van, into the car, out the, the Edmonton barracks, and to cut a long story short, they told me, the boss that I'd never met, came in and told me, your cover's been blown. And I says, well, he said, look, I'll tell you something. They do not know about you and us. Not since you've been working with us since 1981. They do not know. But they have discovered your guy, Ben, that you used to work with. What you don't know is his name is Michael Bethany. And he tried to sell secrets to the Russians. I got rid of Michael Bethany because I didn't trust him. And I left MI5 because of him. And they sent him back to the UK. Now, instead of getting Michael Bethany help for his alcoholism, they put him in charge of the Russian desk. Good idea. He starts then to try and contact the Russians. And he contacted the KGB. And one of the people he contacted was Oleg Gordonevsky. And he was a double agent. And he passed the information to his people, and Bethany was caught. Bethany was sent to jail for life. He was sent to Swale Steel Prison. And while he was on there, he passed information to an IRA volunteer that he could help them, because he was looking for revenge. And he gave my name. He didn't know my surname, but he gave Willie his ex-army, and he's in Sinn Féin and Derry, and from time to time, he gets very close to Martin McGuinness. And that was fed back to Belfast. Belfast decided to speak to Martin. Martin said, get lost. They're talking nonsense. He's not even in the bloody IRA. He's a good Sinn Féin guy. He's speaking at the... No, no way. So that was, was kind of put on the back burner. But my information then is that um, Ivor Bell and McKenna and people like that who didn't like McGuinness, they said to this man, 
go down to Derry, lift him and bring and find out he was a treasurer of Sinn Féin and anyone to know. We need to know, is, he, is, is Sinn Féin moving money from the IRA funds to Sinn Féin funds? Because we don't seem to, be, we don't seem to have the money. And, and this guy was the treasurer. He might be able to give us something. And if he gives you anything, don't shoot him. Bring him back here and we'll put him in front of a press conference. Now, that man was steak knife. And he fed the information to Peter, his handler. Like, I'm going, not just me, a number of things. He was reporting on in his weekly report. And he said, by the way, I'm going to Derry to get this guy, Wooly. Apparently his name's Carlin. I have to go to Cable Street to get some volunteers because I don't know actually where he lives. But I'm going down to get him. Peter told his boss. His boss had a meeting with other bosses and they decide, what, what do we do here? And the decision was made that if they talk to this guy, he'll talk. Because anybody would. You sit here on an electric cooker, you're going to talk. So they decided, get him out of there. And the reason that they pulled me out was because if I had been paraded in front of a press conference in Belfast, I would have been able to give Ivor Bell and the IRA, who didn't know about this move down the road of politics, the information that we were moving funds from the IRA's funds to Sinn Féin funds, and not only that, these people who were looking to get rid of McGuinness could prove that this man, Chief of Staff, who organised people to be shot dead because of informers, had one sitting in his car for the last bloody 11 years, Martin would have been destroyed. And the government and the people in London couldn't take a chance, so they pulled me out. And, and finally, Willie, now that you're living across somewhere in England, Scotland or Wales, uh, you're living under a pseudonym and you are described in the papers as a dead man walking. One of the things that uh, hangs with me is the fact that when you drive your car, you sometimes go three times round a roundabout and back down the road again to see if people are, are following you. It, it, mm-hmm. uh, you look in the reflection, it says in the book, in the reflection of shop windows to see if anyone is behind you are, are you are, are you forever looking over your shoulder yes but, but, but you have to do that and, and I'm telling you now the day and hour I stopped doing that I'm dead now listen I mean I'm not going to tell lies here uh, there are people in Derry that I can phone you know uh, ex-volunteers who are now away their grandchildren say Jesus Wally you were lucky but listen well done because they see me as a guy who helped in a tiny tiny way of helping the peace process, that's what they call it. And, and, and you know, over the years, I mean, all due respect to lovely people in Belfast, and even Danny Morrison writing books, I said to myself, wait a minute, I'm fed up listening and reading about 50 dead men walking and how I saved. Is anybody from Derry ever going to write how we did this? And how these guys then got to where they got to? And, and how are these children not allowed to go to school without worrying about a bomb? And I decided I would write one. So you're, you're writing the book and also uh, reminding us of the, the trauma that you now face, the looking over your shoulders, one of the things. Yeah. But you, you, ca- you can't come home for family funerals. You've lost loved no. ones recently and you haven't been able to pay your respects. No. Well, <laughs> you, you know, I, I tried to get on a plane to go when my daughter died in a car crash. And these people said to me, look, we can't stop you from going, but we're telling you now, if you go to that funeral... We know for a fact there are people from another organization, and they would love to see you. And, and if you go to that funeral, you know, you being there will become the story. 
and you'll be killed. I mean, there are renegades now who don't agree that Martin McGuinness was right. They think he was a traitor. Ex-volunteers, now men in their 60s, and they're kind of managing these young bucks. And these guys are dangerous. And it's one of them. You'll, you could end up like Michael Collins. Somebody could shoot you who doesn't even know you and never knows nothing about you. You know, you, you don't need to take that chance. Now, as regards my life being in danger, it is all the time. Obviously it is. But then you can get knocked down across the road. You can't love like that. You know, you can take precautions, but you can't love. You'd never leave the house. But, you, but, you have to get on with it. Yes, but you seem to be pretty stoic with regards to that. But uh, how sad a day is it when you can't go to your daughter's funeral? Oh, listen. You know, I say my prayers and I cry. And sometimes it's... Uh, yeah. Sometimes it's hard, you know, but... You get up the next day and you just get on with it, you know. Was it worth it, Willie? Well, I have a grandson in Derry and he's never heard of anything and he's going to go to college and I'm glad he can, you know. Do you go back occasionally? Yeah, I went back for me. My sister died. I'm sorry about this. Uh, my sister died in the, and when she was dying of cancer and we knew she only had weeks to live and I knew I couldn't go so I thought I'm going so I booked a flight where everybody could track it and I got the boat instead and me and Doreen that's my sister's name we used to walk and we talked and we laughed and we cried for three days and then I left and she said to me Willie listen I want to tell you something Please don't come to my funeral. He said, because I'll not be there. I'll be beside you. So don't be coming. And you know what? It'll not be, be my bones. And my bones are shot to pieces for the last year with cancer and radiography and chemotherapy. Don't be coming. He said, because they'll probably stick a tricol over my coffin and take me out. He says, don't be coming. And that, so I went back and, and I haven't been back since. So you saw her before she died, but you couldn't attend her funeral. It's the... It's the price that people pay for being involved in the way that you were involved, Willie. It sounds like a cruel, cruel, cruel world. It's a reminder of just how cruel it all was and for you as it still is. The the book, I'm sure, is very well worth reading and people will form their own opinions on it. In the meantime, as you drive your car and look over your shoulder and glance in shop windows... Do you feel a sense of do you feel a sense of achievement or do you just feel a sense of loneliness? Um, it's a bit of both, but but listen, you know I I don't know you, but I'll bet you anything like you've got a great sense of humour. So here's the thing: you need to you need to suck that humour, and you need to have a positive mental attitude. You need to get up in the morning and say, "I'm alive, I'm awake, and I feel great." You need to shout out, "I am, I can, I will." You need to convince your brain that. Today is going to be a good day. And from time to time, you get reminders, a piece of music will come on, you'll think, oh, that's the day he was shot, I was running to that. Or, I'll give you the other day, I was passing a charity shop, and, and I was along with three people, and we were chatting about a seminar that I was running. And, and then the window, it said, volunteers urgently required. And I burst out laughing, and I couldn't tell them what I was laughing at. <laughs> Willie, I appreciate you speaking to me and I'm sure people will be interested in the book. Thanks for coming on the programme this morning. Thank you very much and God bless you and God bless everybody that listens to you.
Thank you very much indeed. That is Willie Carlin uh, described in his own description as Thatcher's spy. Uh, your opinions are always very welcome. Uh- Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.